Resurrection Sunday, the day that for many is uh, a holiday on the calendar, a time to go to church. <laughs> you know, for many years in my own life, in my younger life before I came to Christ, it was always something I would do because it was just what you do on Easter. And yet, as we look at this day, as we look at what it means to us as Christians, uh, perhaps to us who are looking in and saying, what does it mean? As I was preparing this morning, I was thinking about the great conundrum uh, of humanity. The question that every person must ask at some point is, what happens to me when I die? Is this life all that there is? And what's interesting is that in the natural order, we're born and we're born to die. And yet in the divine order, man passes from death to life. And that's a conundrum. That's that, it, the, obviously the question, the, the rhetorical question, what happens to me when I die uh, is answered through the work of the cross, validated by the resurrection. And so the plan of God all along has been that. If you look in the Bible, you see that the opening couple of chapters that God, has, he creates everything and creates man and, and puts all of this together. And then man falls from fellowship with God, created for fellowship with God, falls from fellowship with God because of sin. Man's sin now separating him from God. And man's sin now being that which is inherited through Adam to every living person from life to death. But that's not God's plan. His plan is from death to life. And it has been. I want to take some time this morning and go back into the Old Testament. Uh, by the way, I love this particular study. It's just one of my favorites because... It, it just it, it just blows me away to use vernacular from my youth that that God would do this that He would put shadows and types back in the old a type the, the word type it means an impression and we see types we see impressions or shadows throughout the Old Testament that would find their utter fulfillment in Christ. I'm going to look at just a couple of them this morning. They're profound. And, and you can't miss it once you understand the linkage that's involved from the Old Testament to uh, the person in the work of Jesus, the Christ. Uh, it's fascinating to me. In Exodus chapter 25, we're going to spend some time there. We're going to spend a little time in Leviticus. God lays out a plan. He wants to have a place to come and to dwell with man. There's an issue, though. Because of man's sin, God must be separate from man. He can't inhabit the same space as man because he is holy. And what holy means, we don't get that much in Western culture. What holy means is separate from and above. Purity as relates to infinity, infinite, infinitely pure. And, and it doesn't take much self-introspection to know that we are anything but. So there's a gap. Moses has gone up on the mountain. He's up on Mount Sinai with God. He's going to spend 40 days and 40 nights receiving instruction from God. 
And uh, in Exodus 25, God is beginning now to reveal his plan to him. He says in 25.1, he says, And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they may bring me an offering. For everyone who gives it willingly with his heart, you shall take my offering. Now, not starting off this service talking about giving an offering. (laughs) Just understand that. That just happens to be part of what God's doing here. You know, in this church, we don't, we don't pass a plate because we want people to have uh, obediently make an offering, not take an offering. But what God does here, he says, this is the offering which you'll, you'll take from them, gold and silver and bronze. And then through verses four through seven, we're not going to cover, but they describe all the materials that uh, the people would donate in making this, constructing this thing called the tabernacle which was kind of a weird looking tent in a fenced yard out in the middle of nowhere that was portable. It would be the temple of God. And later in Jerusalem, they would build the actual temple, which would be the, the, it would be the, the, the ultimate realization when they had a permanent parking spot of this place, this dwelling place for God to come to be with man. But in a very limited sense, we're going to talk about that. Uh, here now, the, God is beginning to give Moses instructions on how to build the tabernacle. In verse 8, he says, And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell among them, according to all that I show you. That is the pattern uh, of the tabernacle and, and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. So the question that hits me is, why would God command sacrifices for sin and yet ask a free will offering to build the tabernacle. Uh, and I love, because you can see, you get a glimpse of the, the, the character of God in this. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 4, Paul makes a rhetorical question. He says, what do you have that you didn't receive? And here with Israel, God had provided for their every need. They came out of Egypt with a lot of loot. If you remember reading in the book of Exodus, they brought the, they brought the goods. So in this, God was looking for a people who would freely desire his presence. He wants to dwell among men and he wants people that want him too. And so therefore he says, let this be an offering from your heart. It's the way he does it today. As we come into relationship with Christ, he says, the salvation that I offer is a free gift. The fellowship that I offer you, the fellowship with God himself comes at no cost because the price has already been paid. In John 14, uh, verse 23, Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. What an amazing fulfillment of what we see back here. So what God's telling Moses, he's saying, Moses, I want you to build me a tent, (laughs) a place that I might dwell uh, among you. And now Moses, I want you to put it in a fenced yard, by the way. And and we have Bible terms for all of this. I've got uh, some slides here that that show an artist's conception of what the tabernacle would have looked like. In in this first one, you can see that there's this yard around this thing that's fenced off. And you see that there are some people uh, there at a couple of implements. You go into the gate off the right side of the uh, the frame, and, and you would go in, and then the first thing you would see would be called the bronze uh, altar, or the brazen altar. And it was where they sacrificed animals to atone for sin. Those animals would take the place of the people to atone for sin. And they did this all the time. 
Now, going further there, there was, it was, it was the, the, the bronze laver, and that was where the priests did ceremonial washings because it was very, very important that when people approached God or they handled the things of God, that their hearts be clean. They couldn't be clean uh, from the inside out. But again, as a type, as a shadow, this, this cleaning, this cleansing would happen from the outside. Now, the second uh, slide here, I show in the green, there's the tent of meeting. That's what it was called. That's the, the tabernacle proper. Had two compartments in it. Uh, one was called the holy place. Uh, the front end of it. And the second was the Holy of Holies. We'll look at that more in a bit. And then there's the bronze laver and the brazen altar. Now, the yard around this, the outer court, was 75 feet wide and 150 feet long. All right, all these measurements are given here in the book of Exodus. I'm just taking some shortcuts because I really don't want to try to develop that part of the text uh, this morning. Now, this third one is, again, it's an artist's conception because the glory of God would come and rest in the Holy of Holies over the Ark of the Covenant. And he would guide Israel. By day, there would be a pillar of smoke, uh, a cloud of smoke. And by night, there would be a pillar of fire that would come out of this. Now, the instructions to Israel were, when you, when I move, you move. <laughs> and it was very clear because when this, when the smoke or the fire would begin to go off in a direction, they would have, well, I guess it's time for us to go. And so that was how God did it. Now, going to verse uh, 10 of verse 25, it says, and they'll make an ark of acacia wood, talking about the ark of the covenant now. Uh, and two and a half cubits shall be its length, a cubit and a half its width, and a cubit and a half its height. Now, a cubit is about a foot and a half. It's, it was measured from an, the elbow to the end of your arm. Mine would be definitely longer than that because I'm a big guy, but we're talking smaller Jewish people here. So it was about 18 inches, was what they computed a, cu- a cubit to be. So what he's talking about is this box. Essentially, that's what the ark is. It's, it's a box, and it's 45 inches long, 27 inches high, 27 inches wide. So uh, we'll look at some pictures here in a minute. Uh, in verses 11 to 16, God gives the details. Again, I, I don't want to take the time. We have a lot of ground to cover. But he gives the details of this ark. He talks about that it will be overlaid with, with gold. And that they would do the, make these golden rings and fasten them to the four corners of this thing and then put these wooden poles through. They would build these poles that they would slide through the rings so that the priests would be able to carry the ark from location to location. Ultimately, when they, 40 years from now, <laughs> get up to the edge of the Jordan River, the priests would stand in the waters of the Jordan with the ark and the waters would pile up so that all of Israel would cross on dry ground. This would be an important, important implement uh, representative of the presence of God, the power of God in the lives of the people. So I've got a slide here of what an artist's conception, again, what this Ark of the Covenant would look like. And if you guys remember that movie years ago, Raiders of the Lost Ark, I used to use that photo when I would make reference, but uh, I figured I found a new one. So... (laughs) Nobody knows exactly what it looked like, but there are very specific, again, very specific details and instructions on the construction of the ark. So a beautiful, beautiful, uh, ornately decorated implement 
But there's a lot more going on than just how beautiful it was. So again, we're looking at God said, I want you to put a fence up around this yard. And in that yard, I want you to build a tent. And in that tent, there will be two compartments. There will be a front compartment called the holy place and a back compartment called the holy of holies. And in that back compartment, I want you to put this ark. He goes on here in Exodus 25. He says, You'll make a mercy seat of pure gold. This is the lid for the ark. Two and a half cubits shall be its length and a cubit and a half its width. So again, using the same dimensions, 45 inches long, 27 inches wide. He says, I want you to build this. Don't overlay this with gold. I want this to be solid gold. Fascinating. He says, this is how I want you to do it. Verse 18, and you'll make two cherubim of gold and of hammered work. You shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and the other cherub at the other end. And you shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it of one piece with the mercy seat. Now, I, again, don't have time to go into it, but God had anointed artisans for this very task. And he specifically says the Holy Spirit came upon these guys, filled these guys and gave them the insight and the artistic ability and, and the craftsmanship through which they would fashion this thing. So even in its construction is supernatural in its origin. He says, and the cherubim will stretch out their wings, will stretch out their wings above covering the mercy seat with their wings and they shall face one another. And this is important. The faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. So they'll be looking down as their wings stretch out towards one another. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark, you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. So looking back again, uh, slide number five shows the ark as we looked at a minute ago, and then sort of disappearing the bottom. This would be the mercy seat in slide number six. That's what he's talking about. When he, when he gives the description of the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant that would go into the back room of the tent that would be in the yard that had the fence around. I mean, and we'll get to why all of this had to be. Now he talks about, he says, in the Ark, you'll put the testimony that I'll give you. That would be the tablets of the covenant. And we call them the Ten Commandments. They would be placed inside of the ark. They would also be put in there with a a jar of manna from when God miraculously fed Israel out in the wilderness and also Aaron's rod that had budded because there had been some competition when God was raising up priests to operate this whole thing. There had been some competition and the other guys and God said, well, you guys put your rods down on the ground and who's ever rod buds, he's my man. And obviously that was Aaron and so... To commemorate that, that, and we'll talk about the sons of Aaron in a minute, God had him put that in the ark as well. So here's a visual though, something that strikes me when, because as we'll see in a minute, God says, my presence will not be in the ark. My presence will be over the top of the ark. My presence will be over. And I, his Shekinah glory, the only light that would be in the Holy of Holies would be the glory of God. There was no other source of light. And yet the priest would go in and do his stuff on the day of atonement and look at that uh, on that day. And the glory of God would be over the ark. Now, the Ten Commandments inside of the ark would be symbolic of man's sin. The thou shalt and the thou shalt nots. 
And so what we see here is God looking down upon man's sin. And then this mercy seat underline, underscore the word mercy through which the priest would come and sprinkle the blood of the offering, the blood of the covenant. And then at that point, that blood would become the effectual thing which cleanses. And God now would see that the sin has been dealt with. And we'll look at that again. These are shadows in the Old Testament. Uh, I want you to understand that they're shadows. They were effective. But Israel's sin, the best they could hope for was for their sin to be covered. It could never be eliminated. And they had to come to this thing once a year, every year on the Day of Atonement, because it was, again, effective for a covering, but it wasn't effective for eliminating sin. In this Old Testament shadow, we see the blood of Jesus as that which satisfies the requirements of a righteous and holy God and brings God and man together. In Job chapter 9, Job says this, he says, why is there no mediator between us who may lay his hand upon us both that I wouldn't fear your wrath? Prophetically speaking of the coming together that would need to happen in man's sin being atoned for. Uh, By the way, uh, the word atonement in the Old Testament, it literally translates covering. So there would be a covering that would be needed for man's sin. This mercy seat would offer a covering for man's sin. Verse 22, he says, and there I will meet with you and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat from between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony about everything, which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. So he's saying, Moses, I want you to do all of this. I want to be able to meet with you. I want to be able to have a covering for sin that you could come into my presence. We'll talk about that again as we go. So Essentially, God is telling Moses, uh, he's, he's still up on the mountain, uh, that he wanted to have a place built through which he could dwell with man. But remember in the old covenant, man's sin, again, can't be eliminated, but only covered. Therefore, because of man's sin, in this dwelling place, there would be a set of barriers separating God and man. That's why the yard, that's why the fence around the, the outer court, that's why the the holy of holies. Uh, you, you couldn't serve in the outer courts unless you were of the sons of Levi. And that would be the, that was the, the, of the 12 tribes of Israel. That was the one that was appointed to carry out the priestly duties. I mean, tear down and set up. They, nobody, you couldn't do that unless you were from the descendants of, of, of Levi, the sons of Levi. Uh, you couldn't minister at the altar of sacrifice or at the labor or go inside the holy place unless you were among the sons of Aaron of the sons of Levi. And as we'll see here, no one could go behind the veil into the holy of holies except the high priest of the sons of Aaron, of the sons of Levi. And then only one day a year on the day of atonement and only after he cleansed and made atonement for himself could the high priest come into the presence of God? That's a lot of work. Going now to Leviticus chapter 16 and the day of atonement that we're talking about. In Leviticus 16, 1, we read, Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil, before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, lest he die 
for I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. So uh, (laughs) these guys, Aaron's two oldest sons, Nadab and Abihu, (laughs) they had been reckless. And and they just had this kind of this willy-nilly approach to offering fire in the the tabernacle. And and some say that they were drunk. I, I, I don't know that that was an issue or not. But what I do know is that they had offered strange fire. They had come out of the order that God had established. As you can see, he is establishing very, very clear details on how he would be approached. And they kind of went, yeah, you know, let's just do it. Come on, bro. <laughs> they went in and offered strange fire, and they were consumed by fire on the spot. So God now warns Aaron. Uh, he tells Moses, warn your brother here. You can't do that. Because he's essentially what he's saying is, I am holy, and you cannot treat the things of God in an unholy manner. And they did, and they paid. And so will you, if you do, you will pay. He's very clear about that. Got a couple of slides here of the tent of meeting. It's called the tent of meeting, by the way, the tent there out in the yard, <laughs> out in the outer courts. Uh, This first one shows a cutaway view of the two compartments inside of the tabernacle. And I'm going into this, and I would love, I love teaching on the tabernacle because everything in it points to Christ. And we do not have time this morning to go into it. But I'll tell you what, there are fabulous, amazing shadows and types with all of the implements. You would walk into the holy place And there on the left, you would see the golden menorah, the golden candle stand with seven uh, lamps in it. And then in front of you, you would see there would be the altar of incense, which is significant, symbolizing the prayers of the saints or the prayers of the people as the smoke rose up to God. On the right, you'd see the table of showbread. And the table of showbread was, it had 12 loaves of bread, symbolic of one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And folks, again, I would love to go into it. This is a picture of the throne room of God in heaven itself out of Revelation chapter 4. It just just cooks my circuits when I start studying these things out. Again, no time this morning, but encourage you, uh, if you want to come and uh, join Darren's study here on Tuesday night for the uh, looking at prophecy, looking at these things, there are some amazing, amazing things going on, and they have relevance to our lives today. Second one here, the second, I just overlaid this with some colors uh, in slide number eight here. Uh, the Holy of Holies is that back compartment. That's the, the only thing that would be in the Holy of Holies would be the Ark of the Covenant. That's it. Uh, yeah, there was a sensor that they used to carry the, the, um, uh, the incense in, powdered incense. And some say, well, the censer was in there with the ark. But again, it was either there or it was out next to the altar of incense where they would gather the incense to begin with. So I don't know. But the back compartment was strictly called the Holy of Holies or the most holy place because that would be the place where the, the presence of God would come and manifest over the, the, over the lid, the mercy seat to this ark, the box. I show here the veil that's in yellow. 
Now the veil, it's not like if you think, you know, when I think about a veil, I think about a bride. You know, it's got this like this chiffon little kind of covering over her face. That ain't it here. <laughs> I would hope that a bride wouldn't have this kind of veil because it was seven inches thick. I mean, it was a rug, <laughs> essentially. And it separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And then the holy place out in front. Now I've got some dimensions here. And I, I'm always kind of amazed. And, and even the ones that the, the images that I've got here, I've done a ton of scale drawing in, in my vocational career. And, and these things are out of scale, but it's the best I could find. So well, let's just deal with it. Uh, I look at how big the guys are inside. The thing's only 15 feet high and they show these guys as being teeny guys. It's like, okay, what are they, three feet high? And so anyway, but that's me. That's my brain. I see those kind of things and it, and it makes me kind of nuts. <laughs> but anyway, so the front compartment would be 30 feet long, 15 feet high and 15 feet wide. The rear compartment with the Ark of the Covenant, 15 by 15 by 15. So a total of 45 feet long, this tent. Now it's in a yard that's 75 feet wide. Again, I sit there and I think that's not one fifth. That's more like, that's more like a third. <laughs> but again, so it's out of scale there. So it would be one fifth of the width of this yard at 15 feet wide and 150 feet long. So just so you have an idea, this is not a big tent. This is not a big deal. Now, when they would build the temple, which would replace this, because then God would say, I'm taking a permanent place in Jerusalem in, in those days, not now, because we're the temple. But they would double the dimensions on everything. Actually, they would make it higher than double. But they would double the dimensions of everything from the tabernacle when they built the temple itself. Verse 3 of Leviticus 16, And thus Aaron shall come into the holy place, and with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering, and a ram as a burnt offering, he shall put the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body, and he shall be girded with a linen sash, and with the linen turban he shall be attired. These are holy garments. Says Aaron, your, your street clothes, they ain't good enough. You got to get out of those, and you got to get into these. Therefore, he will wash his body in water and put them on. You've got to understand, again, these are symbolic. These are symbols which illustrate the holiness of God, the purity of God. And for man to even think that he could come into his presence without there being something that happens to man to cleanse him is ludicrous when you understand that. Shadows of what happens with us on the inside, the moment that someone embraces Christ, the moment that someone repents of sin and, and embraces Christ as Lord in their life, we are sanctified. And that is clear from the New Testament. It's a clear teaching. It's not something you do. You can't clean yourself up enough. It's something that God does. And he gives us his very holiness that we could come into his presence freely. Wonderful shadow there. So, and that's what sanctified means. To be sanctified is to be cleansed. Uh, these are external symbols, powerful shadows of what happens on the inside. Hebrews 10.22 talks about Jesus being our high priest. He says, uh, the writer says in Hebrews 10.22, let us draw near with a true heart 
in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What's that a reference to? It's a reference to the Holy Spirit of God coming in. Now he can come in. Now sin can be eliminated, can be dealt with, because when we are cleansed by the blood of Christ, it's a permanent cleansing. Verse 5, and he'll shake, he shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two, two kids of the goats as a sin offering, and one ram as a burnt offering, and Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself. He says, Aaron, you got to, you got to, you got to atone for your own sin first, because you can't do business on behalf of the people until you've done business personally with me yourself. So yeah, he says, and make atonement for himself and for his house. So once Aaron had cleansed and atoned for himself, he would then be able to carry out the process of atoning for the sins of the people. Verse 7, he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So right there at the entrance, he would take these two goats. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell as an, and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat, that's where the word comes from, you hear that term in, in our vernacular. He shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and let it go as a scapegoat into the wilderness. And Aaron shall bring the bowl of the sin offering, which is for himself. Again, there's that for himself and make atonement for himself and for his house and shall kill the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself. Then he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord with his hands full of sweet incense, beaten fine, and put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony on the ark, lest he die. So he's saying, all right, I want you to make sure that you have atoned for your own sin, Aaron. And once you've done that, then you can come into the holy of holies because now you are a cleansed vessel. And you can come in a limited fashion. Again, this is all limited. There are many barriers that God has set up in this. But you can come into my presence and do business on behalf of the people now. uh, As you come behind the veil. And you have this this censer full of incense. I have a slide here. uh, I've used this slide before. uh, Just showing, again, an artist's depiction of what it would look like for the high priest with his linen garments on, with a censer full of incense and the smoke going up, covering the mercy seat, which is on the ark of the testimony where the presence of God dwells. Uh, you know, I think about the, in real terms, gang. I mean, this is real stuff. This isn't just Bible stories. In real, what would it be like to be in there? What would it be like to be able to walk in and to see this glow, this unearthly glow? And know that that's the very presence of God himself over this beautifully decorated, this ornate box that God had had the people make so that he could come and dwell with his people. Fascinating. Verse 14, and he'll take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. And before the mercy seat, uh, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Hang on to that. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering. So this is the goat, the, not the goat. There's two goats. One of them is going to 
bear their sins away, and one of them is going to die for the sins of the people. So he says, then he'll kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, and bring his blood inside the veil and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. And he would do that seven times. So he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions for all their sins. And so he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting, which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. We're going to drop to verse 20 and I'll just continue here. Yeah, I'm going to try to pick it up a little bit here. We've got a lot to cover yet. Uh, it said, and when he had made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting in the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins and putting them on the head of the goat and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. Now, I found a painting of this, which I thought was really cool. <laughs> and just showing that here's the, the high priest, you know, he's got the, the, the linen garments on, praying the sins of the people into this goat, into the scapegoat that he's about to release into the wilderness. Now, the people remember uh, folks, it's always been by faith. If you were of the ilk that went, eh, yeah, they're doing that tabernacle thing again today. I'm just going to stay in my tent. Then, you know, essentially good luck with that. You will not be counted among the faithful, but there were faithful ones here in this. Faithful ones that came and saw the importance of uh, of, of their sin being exposed again before a holy God and taking advantage of what God had provided as a remedy for their sins. And they would have to do this again. They'd have to do it once a year on the Day of Atonement and they would do it throughout the year uh, with the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. The important thing here is we have one goat that dies and one goat that bears the sins of the people away. Folks, this is a powerful shadow of the fulfillment that we have in Christ. Now, things didn't resurrect from the dead back then. They died and stayed dead. And so what God did in his wisdom, in his provision, was provide both, both of the goats, the one that died and then the one that lived. And we see that Jesus, again, the fulfillment, dying for our sins and yet bearing our sins away. One goat suffered the substitutionary death, shadow of the crucifixion. One goat lived to bear the sins of the people away, a shadow of the resurrection. In Romans 5.10, we read, For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. There's a continual cleansing that happens in the heart and in the life of every believer. It's not something you have to go and redo. Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore he also is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. We have an advocate with the Father, the Bible tells us, that when I blow it, Jesus says, No, 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 Father, wait, that's on me. He belongs to me. And that's a perpetual thing that takes place. 
So I want to go from there, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and just make a couple of brief stops. The first is in Luke 23, when we look at the crucifixion. And we look at the veil of the temple. Now, the veil of the temple would have been thicker, actually, than the one they had in the tabernacle. But it is a big, thick thing that is like 60 feet high in the temple. And there is some powerful, we've talked about the barriers that stand between God and man. And God did this whole elaborate thing in the Old Testament to cover man's sin, but it could never be eliminated. So therefore, God remained separate from man. Luke twenty three forty four, and that was about the sixth hour. And there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. So from 12 till 3. Then the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Folks, when that veil was torn, highly symbolic, yes. Symbolic of what? No longer would man need to, and, and, and to, to have his sin atoned for once a year. No longer would I fear approaching a holy God. No longer would I have this perpetual need that there's guilt and there's shame and all of that that accompanies sin that I carry with me because after all, it's never been dealt with. In that moment when the veil was torn, full, unfettered access to God was granted. We're told in the book of Hebrews that we can come boldly before the throne of grace and find help in time of need. Why? Because Jesus was the sacrifice that was shadowed in the Old Testament. He was the one that died for our sins. He was the one that bore our sins away. And now, having done that, it's amazing to me that these shadows, these pictures see their ultimate, their utter fulfillment in the Lord Jesus himself. The requirements of a holy God had been met. The veil was torn. Jesus opened the way to unhindered fellowship and fearless fellowship with God. As Job said, why is there no, no umpire, no daysman to stand between you and me that I wouldn't fear your wrath? And now that had been dealt with once for all. Briefly look at the resurrection in John chapter 20, verse 11. But Mary stood outside the tomb weeping. Now, Mary had gotten up really early on Sunday morning and gone down to the tomb. And she saw that the stone had been rolled away and she freaked out, uh, freaketh out. (laughs) (laughs) She, she didn't like what she saw because she saw the tomb was empty and she went running back to where the guys were and she told them, she said, you know, they've taken the body of Jesus. They've taken him away. And, you know, she was, she was unhinged. She was not happy. And so Peter and John come running back with her. They come to the grave and Peter actually goes inside. He sees that it's empty and he sees that the grave clothes are folded up neatly there on the stone slab. And then the men leave. And Mary is there by herself, standing outside the tomb, weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet. Is that starting to resonate? Where the body of Jesus had lain. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, because they've taken away my Lord. And I don't know where they've laid him. 
And I'm not going to go into the text, not going to develop the text any further, but she turns around at that moment. She's startled because Jesus is standing there. She thinks it's the gardener. <laughs> and, and, and the whole interaction is just so beautiful there. But again, I want to call your attention to something here. There's two angels, one at the head of the stone slab where his body lay, one at the feet as the high priest had sprinkled the blood of the covenant seven times on the mercy seat, there were seven places where Jesus bled as he was laid in that tomb. From his head, from the crown of thorns, from his back, which had been flayed with the scourging that he had received before he was put on the cross, from his left hand and his right hand, which had been pierced with the spikes, the nails, his left foot, his right foot, which had been pierced, and seventh, finally, from the sword in his side to confirm that he was indeed dead. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that had been foreshadowed, typified in the tabernacle. The empty tomb was, for a moment, the most holy place. And the slab of rock where Jesus lay, the mercy seat. You know, I I was thinking about this. Something that I think is interesting is uh, with Air Force One, regardless of what you think about the person that's in it these days, um, <laughs> but it's it's just a plane. It's just a plane until the president of the United States steps onto it and it becomes Air Force One. And if he steps onto another jet, that's Air Force One. Same thing with Marine One. They have several helicopters. It's the one that he happens to be on. That is, that is given that designation. And folks, the Ark of the Covenant was, and I've said it on purpose, but I do that kind of to get you to think, it was just a box. It was a very fancy box, but it was just a box. And the tent of meeting was just a tent. But it took on an entirely different significance, an entirely different meaning when the presence of God was there. I have a slide here. He is risen. He's the embodiment of mercy. In that moment, we see him as being not just the mercy seat, not that stone slab, but he is the embodiment of mercy. What does that mean? It means that none of us will get what we deserve because we deserve eternal separation from God. We deserve eternity in hell. We deserve to not even be counted. They deserve destruction. And yet... Because of his mercy, because of his, the depth of love that God has for us, he's made a way. And it's not through a tent in a yard with a couple of compartments in the, the deepest one having a box. It's through a, a risen Lord. It's through the person of Jesus himself, who when he hung on that cross and said to Telestai, it is finished. Guess what? It was finished. Hebrews chapter 9, spend a minute there and we'll wrap up. In verse 11 says, but when Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, because when God gave the tabernacle instructions to Moses, he said, this is an earthly duplicate, the real ones in heaven. Verse 11 here in Hebrews, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal 
redemption. Not annual redemption like they had in the days of old, but eternal redemption for any who would come. Our redemption was purchased at the cross once for all. Not just once a year, but permanently. Verse 13, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more? Folks, that's my question to us this morning. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? As we remember and we celebrate the resurrection, let's remember the price that was paid at Calvary. Let's remember the victory over death that was accomplished. I began this morning talking about the great conundrum of humanity, the natural order being from life to death that we're born and we die. And the question being, what happens then? And yet we see here that God has dealt with all of it. He has made provision for all of that. In God's economy, you're either born twice and and you die once, or you're born once and there's a second death. That's an eternal death. Have you been born again of God's spirit? Have you been born from above? That's what that means. And if so, are you walking that out? A friend that uh, pastor many years ago, he would have people come into his office and to do pastoral counseling. And, and he would just look at them after they kind of shared what was going on with them. And he would just, he had two questions. And I, I loved it. It's such a simple approach. <laughs> He'd say, are you reading your Bible? And they go, well, 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 well yeah, kind of, yeah, you know. <laughs> and then his second question was this, are you doing it? And that was usually where people would start to squirm because they would realize, you know, I've had this superficial thing with the Lord. And I'll tell you what, I'm not here to put a guilt trip on anybody. And the Bible says we all stumble in many ways. And I get that. <laughs> I'm a guy just like you are a, a, a man, a woman, and we're human and all of that. And yet there is a call to discipleship that he makes. There is a call to go deep with him that he makes. There is a call upon each person's life to choose life. It's not automatic. It's not, it's not automatic. It's not something that happens because you were baptized as a baby. This is something that as a willful act that we choose Christ, that we understand God's provision in the here and now, not in the then, which we've looked at. And I draw, I draw great encouragement. It builds my faith when I read these stories and I understand the significance of what happened then, 3,500 years ago, what, how that applies to my life today. Absolutely. But it's about now. Where are you at with the Lord? We're going to come to the Lord's table here. And as we do, I just want to invite all of us to take some time to bow our hearts and our heads before the Lord, to spend some time in prayer. Come on up, guys. It's going to have these guys pass the elements out. In the Old Testament, God dealt with a group. We call them Israel. In the New, he deals with a group of individual. Uh, We call them Christians. Thank you. Consider with me for a minute the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread and said, take this and share it among yourselves. 
He took the cup and said, take this and drink. I won't partake of this until all is fulfilled in my Father's kingdom. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that Jesus became sin, that we could become the righteousness of God in him. There's a place, folks, where we need to do business with the Lord. On this day where we commemorate the resurrection, that death couldn't hold him, that, that he rose from the dead because he had lived a life in perfect fellowship with the Father. His plans for us are good. His will for your life and for my life is ultimately good. Difficult? I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna try to tell you fancy religious stories that it'll always be joyful and wonderful. But I will tell you that there's no way that you can experience a life that has depth and richness apart from a life in Christ. So I don't know where you're at this morning. I would encourage you, if there has been sin in your life, take a moment, ask God to forgive you, to cleanse you. That cleansing is available because of the cross. If you have ought, if you're at odds with someone, you have a broken relationship, ask the Lord what you could do to mend that. And there are times where that can't happen. Uh, The way that the Bible puts that is as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Grab that. I look at coming to the Lord's table as a time to do business with the Lord, to, to do business with him. He's no longer a God that dwells in a tent or in a temple. With the woman at the well, when Jesus was talking with the Samaritan woman, she said, our fathers worshiped in this mountain, talking about Mount Gerizim, north of Jerusalem. What, what, do, you, what do you say, Jesus? And he said, the time is coming and now is when you won't worship God in this mountain or in Jerusalem. Because she said, well, you, you, you Jews worship in Jerusalem. So you know, what do you have to say? And he said, neither. It's not Mount Gerizim. It's not in Jerusalem. Where the Father seeks true worshipers, those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And Jesus in his infinite wisdom could look down through time past the cross and see that with the door open, with the temple, the veil of the temple torn, that that full-blown fellowship, that, that complete fellowship that we enjoy with God would come through now man being the temple of God, being cleansed, the Holy Spirit can come in and that's where we do business. Folks, it's all about the heart. If your heart has been perhaps hard, calloused, reckless, take a moment. I invite you. Let today be a new beginning. Let today be a time where you, you come humbly before the throne of grace and say, Father, I need your help. I don't just want it. I need your help. Perhaps you've been wounded by life. Perhaps there are circumstances beyond your control that you're grappling with. Allow the Lord to bring healing, comfort, reassurance. In the book of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul was writing to the Corinthian church. Essentially a letter of correction. They, they, we've been looking at it in the book of Acts. We looked at the church at Corinth and, and I'm kind of glad they were a wreck because we get great instruction out of it. <laughs> But he gets to the point of talking about the Lord's table. 
which is what it's another word uh, synonymous with communion. And, and what he does there is really interesting to me because he says, look, I don't want you to take this if you are not a believer. I, be, I don't want you to eat and drink condemnation to yourself. And folks, even if you've received the elements, if you have not got a relationship with Christ, take care of that first, please. And it's a simple prayer. It's a saying, Jesus, I, I'm aware of my sin. I'm aware that it separated me from you. And I turn from that old life and embrace you as Lord this minute, today. And the Bible tells us that he will cleanse us immediately from all unrighteousness. And that veil can be torn in your own heart, in your life today, because you are separated from God if you don't have a relationship with Christ. Don't let that remain. Give your life to Jesus. Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, he says, I received from the Lord that which I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The bread being symbol, symbolic of the, the, the body of, of Christ, the body of Jesus broken for us. He says, I come that you might have life and that more abundantly. And it's not through communion. Yes, we use these symbols as a powerful reminder, but it's through union, it's through him, through the common union we share with Christ. Let's pray. Father, as we consider the death of your son, Lord, freshen our minds thinking of Good Friday and all that that means and all that... Uh, was accomplished at the cross. We're grateful. We're beyond grateful that that you would send your son, that he would go to the cross, that he would die in my place. Amazing. Like the goats that we saw in the days of old, those shadows of what you would ultimately accomplish and fulfill at the cross as your body was broken for us. We're grateful. We're so beyond, we're so far beyond grateful. Lord, there really aren't any words. So as we come to you this morning, I pray for hearts that are revived and refreshed. We thank you. We praise you this morning. Let's take the bread. Verse 25 of 1 Corinthians 11, reading on. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The things we've been looking at this morning, those shadows are the old covenant. And essentially it was summed up as do it and live. We saw the threats. We saw the the barriers that had to be there. The new covenant in Jesus' blood can be summed up as it's done. It is finished. Therefore, love. Let the love of God flood into your heart, into your soul in such measure that when people bump into you, that you just spill Jesus on them. That's what's accomplished through the blood. That's what's accomplished through the cross. He says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Folks, we're looking for the soon and coming uh, of the Lord Jesus. There's nothing prophetically that has to happen before he comes and takes his church away. And I long for the day. And I believe that if you understand the prophetic 
time clock that we're on. If you see your life as being tucked into the pages of this book, I'm ready. Let's pray. Father, again, as we consider just looking at this juice and understanding the symbols there, not literally the blood of Jesus, but symbolic of the blood of the covenant, the same blood that back then was sprinkled over the mercy seat of God, of the ark, and and that, that blood which accomplished redemption for the people then, but not in a perfect sense as the blood of your son does through the cross at Calvary. Again, Lord, grateful doesn't, we just have words. There's just such a depth in in my heart, in the hearts of many here that uh, express pure gratitude for the work that you've accomplished on our behalves. Father, fill us up, fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. Let us not walk out of here without having done business with you, that this Resurrection Sunday, we would walk out renewed, refreshed, revitalized, because we've been in your presence. Thank you, God. Let's take the cup.